Good afternoon and welcome to Deep in History. This is your co-host, Marcus Grodi, joined by Monsignor Jeffrey Steenson. Hello, Monsignor Steenson. Hello. Greetings to you, Marcus. We uh, we greet each other like that just to make sure we're connected over this internet. Uh, and it'd be great if we could be in the same room, but in this world in which we live today, that's for lots of reasons, it's hard to get together. But we're also very grateful for the technology that the good Lord has offered us, and we hope we're using it for a good purpose. And those of you that have been listening to this podcast, we hope you've been enjoying our slow study of Irenaeus' Against Heresies. Um, I'm, I'm finding it fascinating. And what I mean, Monsignor, is not so much what you and I are maybe saying on the podcast, but the 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 prep work that we're forced to do is forcing us to dig into this book in a way otherwise we wouldn't have. And in a way, I want to encourage that to all of our listeners. And it's a, it's a privilege as the more we do it, the more we begin to see the faith from uh, St. Irenaeus uh, through his eyes, we get to see how the, how the early Christians actually looked at lots of these things. So, I've I've been really illuminated by that experience, and I think it's been wonderful. Yeah. yeah, I think last week we uh, I, I played a little bit of a devil's advocate with you when we were bantering a little bit about Newman's developmental theory and how it applied, and um, but I, in some ways, digging so deep into Irenaeus has helped me appreciate the the necessity of some kind of explanation like Newman's development or, or Vincent Lorenz's ideas. We, you got to come up with an idea to explain and, and understand that there were developments. Um, and it, it struck me as I was reading this section today, Monsignor, that because I happened to be reading doing some research on Augustine's view of the sacraments. And I found a wonderful article that, that proves that Augustine recognized all seven sacraments as sacraments. Because there's quotes from his letters in which Augustine yeah. called all seven sacraments by the word sacrament, marriage, sacramental bond. Well, the point is, the distance of time between the writing of this letter and Augustine's writing of his letters is about the same length of time that the United States has been a country. Because Augustine was writing his letters around 400 AD. Augustine's conversion was about 385, let's say. 385, and then he becomes a bishop, and he's the early 400s. Well, this is 175, so we're talking 200, 225 years Mm -hmm. between Irenaeus and Augustine. And we know that the sacramental ideas developed a lot between Irenaeus and Augustine. Because we don't hear much of the seven sacraments in Irenaeus. No, uh, no, I, no, I don't think you see that. You can try and infer it, but it's not out in a specific way spelled out. Yeah, the way we yeah. now understand the sacramental economy, uh, both as Catholics and Eastern Orthodox, in other words, that the sacraments are the primary channel of grace, well, that isn't quite as developed yet in Irenaeus as it will be by the time of Augustine 225 years later. So, no, I made I made several notes about it. That reading along, he speaks about how knowledge 
knowledge um, is the way that salvation comes to us. Yeah, yeah, and it's. I was um, fascinated with that. So that's why um, I I think it's really so important to dig back and through and see, uh, especially in Irenaeus. It's considered one of the first of the church's great theologians. So we're going to pick up today um, in, we're in book three, and we're going to start in chapter four, section three, on page 210 of Keeble's translation. We've just finished a discussion on how the barbarians who received the old apostolic tradition and were converted to Christ and their, their commitment to that tradition that they received from the apostle and the successors of the apostle, Irenaeus makes the point that they would recognize that the false teachings of the Gnostics don't fit in with that tradition that they received. And again, that ref- affirms what St. Paul says to the Thessalonians when he says, stand fast on the tradition that you receive from us, whether oral or written. So that idea of holding to the tradition becomes the theme, if you will, the thread for affirming whether what a person is believing now here 150 years later or whatever it is, 125 years later from when Paul wrote Thessalonians, that becomes hold to the tradition, right? And Irenaeus makes that point. So then we move into section three of chapter four, book four, and I found this chapter fascinating. And on the surface, it may not be that fast, but I'm going to tell you why I found it fascinating. Let me read it. Yeah, okay. Because what's in here is he's referring to the, the, if you will, the interconnection, historic interconnection between some of the earliest bishops in Rome and some of the early Gnostic founders and leaders. And they're real people, and they happened at a real point in time, and they were in the same neighborhoods. And there's something very significant about that. So let me read. For the Valentinians were not before Valentinus, neither were the Marcionites before Marcion, neither were the other malignant notions before enumerated by us, until these began to be introducers and inventors of their perversity. So, if you will, let me back off for a second. Irenaeus is, is, is narrowing down that these heresies came from these guys. The heresies didn't exist, and then they kind of bought into them, right, Monsignor? That, That's it, yeah. Mm-hmm. So there are these, if you will, early, and they were Christians first before they bought into them, yeah. before they took their ideas beyond the church. And is, that's, I think that's really quite significant too. Too that they had fallen. These were people that had been part of the church and had fallen away, um, and that flies against the sort of attitude that a lot of um, modern day scholars of the history of early Christianity um, spread the idea that there were all these competing groups. Yeah. Um, and um, Mar- um, Ignatius, I mean, Irenaeus here is very clear that these are these are fallen away Christian people. Oh, that is such an important point because oh. um, I don't know if I should mention the particular modern heretic that has this other idea, but his idea. Oh, please do. Well, uh, Bart Ehrman uh, yeah, is one oh, of yeah, them. Yeah, yeah. Is one uh-huh. of those that believes that there were all these conflicting ideas, independent freedom of ideas floating around, and it wasn't until the Council of Nicaea in the fourth century that quote orthodoxy end quote was forced on Christianity. Yeah. 
So all this freedom of ideas was lost because we got this creed that everyone had to affirm to. Well, that's not, Irenaeus is saying, no, this orthodoxy was something we received. That's the point of his whole book. That's very important, yeah. We received this orthodoxy, this apostolic tradition, or the old tradition apostolic, as he said in the previous section. Yeah. This was received from Jesus to the apostles and passed on. And then some of it was written in Scripture, and some of it is passed on, but all to be traced back to a church of the apostles. That's the point. And these guys were a part of that. But they broke away. Why'd they break away? In every case, in the first two books, you see, it was almost always sola scriptura. They were taking scripture, but they were spinning it in ways that were contrary to the de- the tradition. Because of their pride and their arrogance, um, and they were they were entrepreneurial in the sense that they were trying to create their own yeah. church. Yeah, there was yeah. one earlier quote, yeah. I think in book two, where it said that each teacher wanted to be more recognized than their teacher. Yeah. That sounds like modern universities. You, you've got to have... It does. It does, you, yeah. You've got to have a new idea if you want to get published. So that's what they were doing. And so he points out here that this whole Gnostic heresy of that we call, that are, are believed by the Valentinians, it didn't exist until Valentinus took them off. Same thing with the Marcionites. They weren't around until this idea arose in a guy named Marcion. And so he's basically saying that's true of all the guys. There are key people. Mm-hmm. There, were, there were historic individuals that, that took these people away. And again, I'm reminded of the first letter of John when he says they were a part of us and they went away from us. Yeah. And he says, they, but by them leaving proves they were not really a part of us. Because if they had been a part of us, they would have stayed with us. Simon, Simon, he was part of the group. Exactly. And then he, then he wanted to be more important. And the Apostle John calls them antichrists. You know, we're, we're anticipating yeah. the antichrist someday. But he says, even now there are antichrists, John says in 1 John. Well, in other words, men that are against Christ and his teachings. That's what's happening here. And the reason I want to emphasize this is because what comes next. Because it says, for as for Valentinus, he came to Rome under Hyginus, but flourished under Pius and continued even to Anesitus. Now, if we turn back a page and we go to page 206, actually, if we go to page 207, we see where Irenaeus gives the names of mm-hmm. all the bishops of Rome. And so you have Peter and Paul to start out with, and then Linus, and then Clement. And then after Clement, you have Avaristus, and then Avaristus is Alexander, and then Zeistus, and Telesphorus, and then Hyginus, and Pius, and Anesitus. So this is a historic period of three bishops in Rome, and while those three bishops were heading up the church in Rome, at the same time they were there, Valentinus falls away, starts his alternative understanding of Christianity, blended with Greek philosophy, and he shows up in Rome. And he's there during the, not the time of not just one bishop of Rome, but he's there during three bishops of Rome. He flourished under Pius, and then he continued even to Anesitus. And then Irenaeus goes on, and as for Cerdan, who was before Marcion, he too under Hyginus, who was the ninth bishop, 
came to the church, made his confession, and so continued sometimes teaching privily, sometimes again doing penance, and sometimes under censure for the evil he was teaching and separated from the assembly of the brethren. So the second Gnostic teacher he refers to is this Surden, mm-hmm. who comes, is a part of the church under Hyginus, who was the ninth bishop of Rome. He made his confessions. So in other words, he professed the faith. Um, he even did some Bible studies, it kind of implies. Sometimes, again, doing penance. Well, that is a clear description of the early sacrament of confession. Yeah. Whenever you see doing penance, he wouldn't be doing penance unless a bishop or a presbyter had heard his confession and told him what to do, his penance. Um, But then eventually he came under censure because of what he was teaching and he was separated from the assembly of the brethren. There again, we have this emphasis that was in Scripture as well as in Irenaeus that, as Paul said, you know, you separate yourself from these heretics or you separate them from the church. Yes. Yeah, and I just wanted to, it was just a slight slip of the tongue. Uh, You used passive or separated when you said that he was separated. He wasn't excommunicated. He he willfully separated himself from the church. Very good. And separated from the assembly. So he himself left. Good. Thank you, Monsignor. And then Irenaeus goes on to the, uh, the next one, Marcion. And Marcion, succeeding him, flourished under Anesitus, who occupied the tenth place in the episcopate. But for the rest who are called Gnostics, they have their beginnings, as we have shown, from Meander, Simon's disciple, and with what opinion soever each one of them hath taken his part, of that the father and first promoter hath been evident. So that, excuse me, refers to Simon as the founder of all these guys. And then the last sentence in that paragraph, and all these made their move towards apostasy much later, when now the times of the church were verging towards middle age. Now, there's so much in this thing, which is so, it's, so cool. It's, 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 and I just think for our... our um friends who are joining us, again, I, I just wanted to point out, I've been spending the summer reading stories about the Gnostic Gospels and some of the new um, books that have been written on all these controversies. And it's, as you've said, Marcus, in uh, academic world today now, I mean, it's almost goes without saying that they all think that um, Christianity used to be one big, happy, pluralistic mess until the heresy hunters came in and drove these people out. And here we have a very clear witness that it didn't work that way. You know, it's funny. when you, Whenever you hear people that want to address scandal in the church or, or the need for renewal, which has been an authentic call, in the history of the church, off and on from the beginning, often they want to go back to the way it was in the beginning because they assume it was like it is here. You know, it's, it's united. And then now let's go back to that. Well, the people you're talking want to go back to, but they're, they're postulating a false past so they can justify their present chaos. <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah, the chaos well, we're well, going through now is just like it was in the beginning. Hey, well, it was Genesis 1, yeah. But <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, so anyway, uh, here's, wow. the, here's the thing that I found fascinating as I read this. And that is that, so here we have the 8th, the, um, 9th, and 10th bishops. No, the 9th, 10th and 11th bishops of Rome. And we really don't know much about their histories. 
Um, no. All of that was destroyed during the during the persecutions, and it wasn't until um, Eusebius and others started to write, and even they had limited actual knowledge of of the of what was happening in the lives of these early bishops of Rome. However, here we have in the second century, Irenaeus telling us that during the the leadership of these three bishops, underneath them, there were problems. And what it reminded me of is when you go back to how Jeremiah described the Old Testament kingdom after Solomon and after David passed the baton to Solomon because the promise of God was that an offspring of David would be in the leadership forever. Mm -hmm. And so it's passed on to Solomon. And we see in 1 Kings, the early part of 1 Kings, that under Solomon, the kingdom of Israel became as great as it ever had been. Everything was just hunky-dory until Solomon gave in to temptation with his many wives and then was led into apostasy, worshiping on the high places and all the pagan stuff. And it says in 1 Kings 11 that as a result of that, God would fulfill his part of the bargain, his part of the covenant, and and there would be punishment. And, and that led to the division of Israel into the northern and southern kingdoms. And you have the southern kingdom, which is Judah, and the northern kingdom are the other ten tribes. Judah and Benjamin are the northern kingdom, or the southern kingdom, and then, anyway, when you... When you read, then when you read 1 Kings, 2 Kings, you have Jeremiah describing each king one after another. And there are some nasty kings and there are some good kings. And then some nasty kings and then some good kings and some nasty kings and some good kings. Then you get to some place later on where you get really good kings, Josiah and Hezekiah. But What's fascinating is that, of course, he doesn't give big books of description on all these kings. They're always a little, about three sentences to describe the entire reign of these good kings. And I'm going to read the examples of two kings, two of the better kings of Judah. And what I want you to hear as I read this is to think about what if Jeremiah was describing the pontificates of the three bishops in Rome during this time. For example, in 1 Kings 15, in the 20th year of Jeroboam king of Israel, Asa began to reign over Judah, and he reigned 41 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Mekah, the daughter of Abishalom. And Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as David his father had done. He put away the male cult prostitutes out of the land and removed all the idols that his fathers had made. He also removed Mekah, his mother, from being queen mother because she had an abominable image made for Asherah. And Asa cut down her image and burned it at the brook Kidron. But the high places were not taken away. Nevertheless, the heart of Asa was wholly true to the Lord all his days. So in Asa, we have a good king of of Judah who followed in the footsteps of David and even had his mother was one of the bad folk in the previous reign of his father. And so he had to get rid of the influence of the bad family, which reminds me of some of the history of the popes uh, right later on in the the, uh, Middle Ages where you have the families that are running the popes. It's mm-hmm. the bad families. Anyways, here Asa gets rid of his mother because of her influence. He tries to get rid of all the idols that are there. But it says, but the high places were not taken away. In other words, even though he was a great king and he did everything possible underneath him, the remainder of the bad stuff remained. It was there. 
And then the next king, his son, in 1 Kings 22, Jehoshaphat, the son of Asa, began to reign over Judah in the fourth year of Ahab, king of Israel. Now, just a point there. Ahab is one of the worst kings of Israel on the other side of the street. But Jehoshaphat's being a good king. Jehoshaphat was 35 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 25 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Azuba, the daughter of Shilhi. He walked in all the ways of Asa, his father. He did not turn aside from it, doing what was right in the sight of the Lord. Yet the high places were not taken away, and the people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. Joseph had also made peace with the king of Israel. Now, my, my point is, if, if Jeremiah were writing the history of Hyginus, Pius, and Anesitus, he may have said, Hyginus became the, the ninth bishop of Rome. He reigned for so many years. He walked in the way of the Lord. But nonetheless, while he was there, Valentinus showed up. And while he was reigning, these Gnostics were thriving. And then Pius became the 10th bishop of Rome, a good man, faithful to God, everything he could. However, while he was there, Serdan was getting, was becoming powerful. And then, you see what I'm saying is that you could describe the, the rulers of Rome, the bishops, through the same lens of the way Jeremiah described the kings of Judah. Now, would it be okay, Marcus, if I just gave a, a slightly um, cautionary response? Of course. Those kings had sovereignty. These popes were under persecution. Yes. They had, they had no, um, beyond, you know, beyond the relationship of, of obedience that was freely given to them by the faithful, you know, they didn't have any standing in the state. Well, then, and I'm, I'm not meaning to imply anything negative yeah. about those bishops because these guys were there. That, that, that's not what I was, was getting at in any, if anything, it points out the difficulty of even a king to yeah. to bring complete renewal to his kingdom, even when he's the best king, as we see in the history of Judah. Even the best king cannot force uh, orthodoxy on laity. Same right. is true of even the best bishop who does everything he can to bring renewal to his diocese cannot prevent the work of Satan to try and undergird everything he tries to do. And we see that. In other words, that's to me, that's what Irenaeus is kind of showing, that these guys were, were flourishing there in Rome under good bishops. Yeah, I don't. I guess I don't see it as um, flourishing in quite that sense. I mean, flourishing in the sense that they were popular with the, with the, with the, the populace, but not yeah. necessarily in the church. But they were, you know, the, the pagan populace, and then, and they were misleading people in the church. Yeah. Well, he uses the word that yeah. Valentinus did flourish under Pius. Yeah. But again, it also gets to the point as you and I were just over there in Rome at the time, when we think of the church, I mean, the danger is we, we read back into envisioning in Rome the way we see the church today. Right. No, these were still home churches. I mean, That's right. these are still just home churches. There's no cathedral at this point, I don't think. No. There's no cathedral. Unless San Clemente, in the basement of San Clemente, if that was, but you know. Um, you know if anything, just... Valentinus, had a, he had his own home church is what he was doing. You know, he, so. And he probably had a lot of financial support. 
that's why they were in Rome to make a lot of money. In the early days of the church, the the devil trying to destroy in every way possible this growth of the church first tried to get Christians to surrender to paganism. We yeah. see that in, in the New Testament. Um, and yet we see the writers of the New Testament telling them not to and, and how to avoid it. And But then second of all is the rise of this Gnosticism. And we see it here, infiltrating mm -hmm. Rome during the time of the bishops. And that's what I'm saying is that even the best of bishops doesn't guarantee that he can impose purity on on a diocese. It's you, you can't. And we'll have apostasy will always be there. And you know, it's just a. Yeah. I mean, people apostatize all the time. It's just, yeah, yeah. There's, it's there's, a cautionary reminder. And if anything, that's why was one of the motives behind Irenaeus writing these books. To help people know what these teachers are really teaching, why they were false, what, what they're based on the scriptures, but a, a twisting of the scriptures, and that they were not just hidden out there, but they're the, they're right in the midst. Here they are in Rome under the bishops for three generations, mm -hmm. three different popes. I mean, they're there flourishing uh, with great influence. Uh, and flourish again. Marcion succeeding him flourished under Nesimitus. So, you know, the, the word flourished says that these men were having influence, which was the, the impetus behind Irenaeus writing this. Now, or that they were, or could you, sometimes we use that word of, they were at the pinnacle of their career, if you will. Right, right. So it may have been there, the end there, at, you know, there was at the, yeah, yeah right. Yeah. Now, one other sentence that I found fascinating in this paragraph was the last one that uh -huh. says, and all these made their move towards apostasy much later when now the times of the church were verging towards middle age. Isn't that a beautiful, it's, the picture is <laughs> wonderful. <laughs> these are just snot-nosed kids. <laughs> <laughs> you know, running around misbehaving. But it also um, emphasizes uh, the assumption still in the early church that that we're in the last times. Yeah, and St. Irenaeus would certainly raise his hand in agreement on um, that. And but, but look at the confidence, too, that the church, the Catholic Church, is it's stable. It has maturity. Um, so it's you know the tradition is fixed, and um, yeah, you know it's a rock. In in my mind, the the use of the word towards middle age could also imply that in Irenaeus's view, the end was approaching. The end was approaching. Yeah. And we see that, which is part of the reason why Augustine, 200 years later, would write the City of God, because a great many people were interpreting the, the attacks on Rome as that fulfillment of the end times. And as we get further into the book, into the work, we'll probably have time to sort of explore some of his views about um, the millennium. Yeah. Um, he was one of those that believed in the literal return of Jesus Christ and um, the significance of the city of Jerusalem. Well, we as Catholics believe in the literal return of Jesus Christ, but his particular <laughs> way that he did, eventually the church had to recognize wasn't the accurate way. And we'll get into that as yeah. sometime in a couple of years when we get to that part of the book, I think, uh, Monsignor. <laughs> let's, uh, in fact, let's okay. let's move to the next sentence in chapter five, section one, because this 
serves as an important transition, Monsignor. Let me read that, and then I'll, I'll turn it over to you for your thoughts on how this is a transition. Because he writes this then, being the case of the apostolic tradition in the church, we having it so abiding among us. Let us return to our argument from the writings of those apostles who composed the gospel, proving from what they have set down as their view concerning God, that our Lord Jesus Christ is the truth, and in him is no lie. Even as David also, prophesying his birth of the virgin and his resurrection from the dead, saith, Truth hath sprung out of the earth, and the apostles too, being disciples of the truth, are apart from all lying, for lying hath no fellowship with the truth, as darkness hath. Darkness has no fellowship with light, but the presence of the one excludes the other. Our Lord, therefore, being the truth, told no lie. And I think it's just good to be uh, to recall again what uh, Irenaeus is dealing with with this Gnostic heresy. Um, one of the common themes amongst all these Gnostic teachers is that there are basically um, two gospels. There's, there's one that the apostles set down for the simple people and they used kind of crude metaphors and things like that to help the simple people kind of grasp a few things. But then there is a, a higher gospel that was passed on orally for those that are the elect. And and I, I see this chapter five um, where uh, Irenaeus is saying that the gospel writers are absolute, they have perfect integrity. They're not preaching two different gospels. Um, there's one gospel yeah. from one, one God and from his son, Jesus Christ, one gospel. And... Um, and, and not the two that the Gnostics are going about. You know, one phrase that we take so much for granted as Christians is the phrase, our Lord Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. Our Lord Jesus Christ. And we, we just say that and don't think anything about the implications of those words. But here we have Irenaeus in 175 affirming that phrase which it's before the Council of Ephesus, oh, excuse me, Council of Nicaea, where we see the Trinity more clearly defined, three gods, three persons, mm -hmm. one God. But the phrase, our Lord Jesus Christ, assumes within that that Jesus is God. Yes. Because the word Lord means the, the Old Testament reference to God. In its full sense. Yeah. So you can see that right. is the assumption of Irenaeus. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the truth and in him is no lie. And as you were saying, that there's no not two or three or four Gospels different. Yeah. There's one Gospel told by the apostles who wrote the four. And I think we get to that pretty soon, or did we already talk about the, the four Gospels being... Uh, we'll get oh, to that eventually. That'll probably be the next our next session. Yeah, yeah we're almost done with this section. Yeah. We didn't get as far, yeah. anywhere near as far as we thought. I'd like us to jump a paragraph or two ahead, because there's a there's a, a statement that he makes that connects a little bit with what you just said. In other words, the gos the Gnostics have kind of come up with a different gospel, kind of fitted into what's going on in their own lives. In on page two eleven, section two of chapter five, um, the second or so sentence, he says, "For the apostles." Who were sent to find the erring, and for the sight of those who saw not, and for the healing of the sick, did of course speak to them not according to their momentary notion, 
but as the manifestation of the truth required. And Marcus, I, if you don't mind me just jumping up, up a few sentences, because please he, he's repeating himself here, because um, they were basically what the agnostics are saying is if you look um, on page 211, about a third of the way down the page, the Gnostics are saying that the apostles framed their teaching hypocritically according to the capacity of their hearers and their answers according to the prejudice of those who inquired of them with the blind discoursing blindly according to their blindness and with the sick according to their sickness and with the erring according to their errors um, that to such imagine the creator to be the only God, they proclaimed him, but for those who are capable of the father who cannot be named, they frame by parables and riddles the unalterable truth. So there's the two kind of gospels that they're, that, you know, yeah. that the Gnostics are going on about. I mean, this continues to go on, that people take the scriptures and they, they shape the scriptures, the message of the gospel, to match needs that they see or wants that they see in their audience. So they shape it a little bit to gather an audience, to gather a hearing. And so if, if talking about hell is going to be uh, a discouragement to my audience, well, then I, I won't talk about hell. I won't mention hell. Um, if talking about um, love of God and you'll be blessed, well, then I'll emphasize that because that'll draw an eye. So you end up with a, a completely reshaped gospel that has no punishment mm -hmm. and nothing but blessings because that's what my audience will more respond to. Yes, that's perfectly put. And that's what they're doing. Yeah. And in this case, the Gnostics were saying that that's what the apostles were doing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But but to Aaron but Aaron answers for the apostles who because of what you've read there he goes to the conclusion uh -huh. that that's not what they did. They were sent to to find the erring for the sight of the of those who could not see. To, to heal the sick, to speak to them not according to their momentary notion, but as the manifestation of the truth required. And it really does connect with the time period that will be, that has already been happening during the time of Irenaeus, but will happen particularly in the next 125 years as people stand for truth and it leads them to death. They don't compromise truth to avoid persecution. Yeah. Some do, and that becomes a problem. The lapsed, right? That leads to a problem. But the emphasis here is on holding to the truth. Marcus, you know, on the next page on 211. Um, 212. I, there was some, or yeah, 212. Sorry. Yes, yes, yes. Um, uh, again, we're about a third of the way down the page here. It's this long section um, two here, but it's it's this struck me. I underlined this as I was preparing for this, and we uh, touched on it at the very beginning of a podcast. Um, now, ignorance, the mother of all these, you know, sins, is done away with by better knowledge. The Lord therefore provided knowledge for His disciples whereby he both cured the sick and restrained the sinners from their sin. Isn't that interesting? Um, we were talking about the seven sacraments earlier. Um, and this is not, a, he's not proposing a sacramental system here. He's talking about teaching, knowledge, truth. I. I'm sorry, where, where is that? I haven't found it yet. Okay, it's on page 212. Okay, gotcha. And, 
right? And it's about one third of the way down the page. So I mean, he begins the, this section by asking, how are the sick to be strengthened? How are the oh, sinners yes. to perform their penance? By perseverance in the same contact? Or on the contrary, by submitting to a great change and departure from their former conversation, by which they have brought on themselves no small sickness and many sins. Now, ignorance, the mother of all these sins, is done away with by better knowledge. Um, the Lord therefore provided knowledge for his disciples. I mean, so what the what the disciples are doing in passing on this tradition is th that truth that yeah. they're passing on is medicine, medicine for the soul. I just, it just jumped out at me as that, very um, profound here. To me, that, that connects with how I understand at this point Irenaeus's understanding of apostolic succession. Yes. That it is the passing on of correct knowledge. And if you want to know what is true, you want to go to a church of an apostle. So for an example, if you want to know all the churches and groups that are up in Western Europe at the time, if you want to know which is true, you go to the church of the apostles in Rome because we almost agree with that, he says, because that's where the true knowledge, now the word knowledge is gnosis. Yes, that's right. When, you know, those later Greek fathers over in Alexandria talked about the true Gnostic. Yeah. The true Gnostic, one who, you know, is devoted to the truth of the, of the faith. So in essence, Irenaeus isn't downplaying the idea of the importance of gnosis, of knowledge. The key of this whole book is which one is true. And That's how do you correct. know which of these words of knowledge are true? Because salvation depends on surrendering to the correct gospel message. And how do you know? Well, because we received it as apostolic tradition from Jesus himself. That's what he is saying. So how do you know? And they're trying to, the Gnostics are trying to say, no, the apostles, they're twisting it. They're making it fit their people. They're, make, they're, they're making it whatever it is, you know, to gather an audience or to please people or to make money. However, that's what the next is, no. No, no, no. And so Irenaeus' whole thing is to point out the flaws of these false knowledge and, and point to the one church that holds true to, to what they had received from Jesus. As he began chapter 5, this then being the case of the apostolic tradition in the church. We having it so abiding among us. We having it so abiding among yeah. us. The knowledge of Jesus. It isn't, yeah. At this point in time, the graces come not from a sacramental channel yet. At least it doesn't seem. It comes uh, I from... I think... Oh, I, I'm sorry, Marcus. I, I, if if St. Irenaeus would come and speak to us now in our parishes, I think one of the things he'd caution us about is to be careful that we don't take too mechanical a view of the sacramental life. Um, it's, it's not the things that we do that is going to cut, cut it. It also requires that we have a living faith. Yeah, at this point, I've mentioned a few times in the past about the Anabaptists that will arise after the Reformation, who the reason they rose was because they denied the, the validity of infant baptism. And I'm guessing part of the reason they saw 
the problem with infant baptism is because, yeah, one of the problems of infant baptism is it can lead to um, nominalism because people can take too seriously this infant baptism as if that's all that mattered. Mm -hmm. And so they don't need to grow in the knowledge of the faith, into the commitment of the faith, into the convictions, because they look back and say, well, I was baptized as an eight-day-old baby. And so, but the Anabaptists threw it out. They threw the baby out with the bathwater. They, yeah. they denied yeah. the, the, the validity. And I think Augustine himself talks about the problem of infant baptism. Yes, he does. In De Baptismo, on baptism, yes. And he, he makes that point that there could be a whole lot of baptized people in hell. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the emphasis here, Irenaeus, is, he's not denying the power of baptism because we know he talks about baptism in other places. We'll get to Or the Eucharist. He talks about those in other places. But he's emphasizing that the true knowledge of the gospel is yeah. how we are saved. And faith in Christ, that's how we are saved. Um, we are enabled through the graces we receive but we still have to respond to those graces. All right, Monsignor, we're going to pause there. That's okay. as far as we're going to get in this episode. Um, if you will, make a mark. Those of your listeners, thank you. We look forward to your comments, uh, any of your thoughts. Um, you know, sometimes Monsignor and I are being a little uh, uh, devil's advocacy on some of these issues because we want we recognize that people, when they read some of these early fathers, come up with different views, as did Keeble himself. Is, yeah. Yeah. So we'll pick up from there next week. Monsignor, could you close us with a blessing? All right. You know, we didn't quite get to the... We didn't quite get to the prayer on the next page, but maybe we can anticipate next week by my closing with that prayer on uh, all right uh, on uh, page 215 chapter. yes yeah page 215 right because um, he wants to pray over his work grant to everyone who reads this writing to acknowledge thee that thou art the only God and to be strengthened in thee and to withdraw from all heresy, all godless, all impious opinions. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Monsignor, for joining me in this uh, study today. And all of you who are listening or watching, I hope you've enjoyed this. Again, if you have any questions, please contact us, and we'll look forward to being with you again next week. God bless. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you.